This podcast is brought to you by the NATO Association of Canada and the University of Toronto's NATO Research Group. Ce balado vous est présenté par l'Association canadienne pour l'OTAN et le Centre de recherche sur l'OTAN de l'Université de Toronto. In this podcast, Professor Mangosia Fitzmaurice and our senior research fellow, Janakin Muthukumar, discuss various aspects of treaty law and how understanding treaty law would help practitioners and policymakers to draft international agreements to preserve peace and security. Um, NATO Association of Canada and the NATO Research Group at uh, Mung School of Global Affairs thank uh, uh, Professor Malgosia Fitzmaurice for agreeing to take part in our podcast. Uh, before we begin, I would like to give a brief introduction of Professor Malgosia Fitzmaurice. Uh, professor Malgosia Fitzmaurice is a professor of public international law at the Queen Mary University of London, where she holds a chair of public international law. She specializes in international environmental law, uh, whaling, uh, indigenous rights, and the law of treaties. On all of these subjects, she publishes extensively. Her monograph on whaling and international law was published by Cambridge University Press in December 2015. In 2001, she delivered the Hague Academy of International Lectures on the International Protection of Environment. Professor Malgosius was invited several times as a visiting professor by numerous universities, such as IMO, International Mar uh, Maritime Law Institute in Malta, um, uh, UC uh, Berkeley law School of Law, University of Paris, and University of Kobe, Japan. Once again, we thank Professor Malgosius Fitmoris for her time to join us. I, Janahan Muthukumar, is a senior research fellow at the NATO Association of Canada and a leading researcher at the NATO Research Group at the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. I'm also a proud student of Professor Malgosia Fitmoris. Hello, Professor. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. I am very happy to be here and very honored. And also we have, we share uh, uh, common memories of our LLM class on the law of treaties in which you were an outstanding student. So thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to interact with you again. Thank you, Professor. Uh, I got from you a few questions. Yes. Uh, on the law of treaties, which now I'm going to a bit elaborate on it. Thank you, Professor. So I will ask the questions uh, uh, and then uh, we could able to go and discuss that you were able to elaborate more. Professor, of course, you are one of the few experts in international law around the world. And tre treaty law is the essence of international law and international uh, relations. Uh, Professor, can you kindly explain to our audience why treaties have been a significant source of international law so far, comparing customary laws and general practices of practice? Thank you for this question. It's a very a good question and very significant because it goes to the heart of the matter of sources of international law. Obviously, the easiest question would be to say that customary international law is still the most important source. However, um, from the point of view of clear setting out of rights and obligation of states, I, in my view, treaties um, play a very important role and have superiority over customary international law. So first of all, 
treaty set out um, rights and obligations in clear language, obviously subject to interpretation at times. However, they avoid very difficult um, proving of norm of customary international law. So treaties escape uh, proof of practice, proof of opinio juris, mm -hmm. which obviously it's extremely difficult, as we know from practice of the International Court of Justice. And because it is so difficult, it leads to certain misunderstanding or debate uh, over International Court of Justice handling of the proof of customary international law, mm. where it basically relates on its own pronouncements and judgments. So this practice of the ICJ was subject to an ongoing debate in international law, and I call it a pyramid, because it's the basis of the pyramid, and then as far as it goes, the, state, the court says, in case so-and-so, we said that this norm is customary international law. So in the end, there is no proof of practice, there is no proof of opinio juris, and it only leads to uh, many pages written by scholars. Whereas in law of treaties, it's a document, mm. which is a very practical document, the document which is results of many sometimes months, if not a year, of negotiations. So obviously all difficult uh, problems are ironed out. And as I said, it doesn't mean that the treaty doesn't have points which are not, which are unclear, but then it's treaty interpretation. But it doesn't happen very often. Hmm. If we look at the practice of the ICJ, it really does happen very rarely. So in comparison to customary international law, it's a far more confident for state source of international law. And even more so in relation to general principles, as we still have debate, what are these general principles? And when I was reading the um, archives of the discussion of the Comité de Juristes setting up the Permanent Court of International Justice, actually the problem of the, um, defining um, and uh, sort of calibrating of the general principles of law caused the most problems. And at this stage, um, it was decided that they are probably uh, principles which are common to all national systems. But since then we developed, and there is also a very fine line sometimes between customary international law and general principles of law. So from the point of view of clarity, uh, confidence, um, clear text, uh, treaties as a source of international law have absolute superiority over difficult customary law and general principles. Thank you, Professor. That's, that's, that's a very clear introduction to why we have to go uh, with the treaty law, uh, particularly as we're moving into more complex issues in the world. Uh, but Professor, when we talk about treaty law, we always derive from the foundation of Vienna Convention on Treaties of 1969. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a history 
what made the International Law Commission to come up with the Vienna Convention on Treaties and how it changed, how we look at treaties before 1969 to now? Well, I, um, I will give a little bit the reasoning why the International Law Commission has taken up law of treaties. In 1949, it was the first project of the law of, uh, of the International Law Commission was the codification of the law of treaties. Why? Because already by uh, mid 19th century, 20th century, the law of treaties was fairly well developed. And law of treaties go back in thousands of years. So by the time after the Second World War, it was a general feeling that International Law Commission had this ripe project waiting to be codified, which was the law of treaties. It was already practice of international courts and tribunals, practice of treaty making by states. However, there were some changes already in the air, which actually prompted even more the International Law Commission to spend time on the codification of the law of treaties. So there were several rapports, special rapporteurs. It was Professor Briley from the United Kingdom, Lauterpacht United Kingdom, Fitzmaurice United Kingdom, and Waldock, who was also a special advisor to the two Vienna Conventions on the Law of Treaties, which in the end were the um, final steps in, in codification of the Vienna Convention. So as we can see, it took almost 20 years. Mm. And why so long, which is a question I often ask myself, since the law of treaties were already well formulated and it was an ample practice of states and in the meantime also practice of international court of justice which was um, put together in the seminal articles of Fitzmaurice, published in the British Yearbook, uh, starting from 1951. So that was also the basis of the uh, work of the Commission. However, there were certain occurrences, especially the one which prompted even more the International Law Commission to step up its efforts i.e. the advisory opinion to the reservation um, to, um, uh, to the Genocide Convention. And this, is, this was the turning point in the work of the International Law Commission. And let me go back to uh, the practice of the League of Nations mm -hmm. and to practice of the uh, Pan-American Organization of uh, American States which before the Second World War were the main sources of the practice to reservations. I.e. League of Nations had this very strict principle of unanimity that reservation, reserving state was treated as a party to a treaty when all the states unanimously accepted the reservation. However, Pan-American system was flexible, mm. i.e. it was based on acceptance of reservation and non-acceptance. So it already started to treat uh, treaty as a, a part of bilateral relations between states which accepted 
and states which reject it. Mm. So in 1950, the um, ILC was leaning towards the system of the League of Nations. But then the advisory opinion happened when the court was faced with the two issues, issue of universality and issue of integrity of the uh, text of the convention. However, the issue of uh, humanity, protection of humanity, mm. prohibition of genocide was so important that the court introduced the criterion of object and purpose to a treaty. So that ref uh, refers to treaties which are silent on the question of reservation, neither prohibit nor um, admit. Mm. So permit. So the court said that the problem of reservation to genocide convention should be looked in light of its object and purpose. If the reservation is consistent with the object and purpose of a treaty, then a state, reserving state, can be admitted as a party to the uh, convention. So that was what the court said. Then the ILC Commission took note hmm. of, the, um, of, the, of the advisory opinion and adopted in Article 19C the um, a flexible approach with difficult criterion of object and purpose. Because as we later know, this became one of the issues still unresolved in the law of treaties. However, what was also important that the International Law Commission has not stopped at that, but during the Vienna conference, it adopted the solution that the mere um, objection to reservation does not mean that there are no treaty relations between the objecting and reserving state. The um, final solution was that a state, objecting state, has to express uh, definitely its wish not to be, not to have treaty relations between objecting and reserving state. So the Vienna Convention not only um, uh, not only is a codification of the customary international law of treaties, but at the time of adoption, we can say it was also progressive development. Right. It was also a progressive development. And I would like to say that procedural uh, clauses of the Vienna Convention until very recent were not treated as customary international law. However, in genocide conven conven in reservation to second genocide convention, convention. In Rwanda case and Democratic Republic of Congo, the court already said that it's probably becoming customary international law. And that was the same conclusion adopted by the arbitral tribunal in um, Croatia, uh, Croatia case, 
when it said that it's probably already customary international law. But at the time of adoption at the Vienna Convention uh, conference in 68 and 69, mm. the um, solution on reservation, it's, they are different views whether it was already customary international law. So the Vienna Convention, yes, it's the basis, but I can say it's still developing mm. because when uh, Professor Pelle in 1996 was given the task of the doing of the developing reservations, it meant that there were certain gaps in the Vienna Convention. Mm. And these gaps were a reservation to human rights treaties as well, which was unresolved, and um, certain issues as impermissibility of reservations, mm -hmm. because the, um, the criterion of object and purpose is very difficult to pinpoint what is the object and purpose and who should decide. Mm is it a state or is it maybe we need an outside body which is a third body to decide whether the um, reservation is cons consistent with object and purpose so again on the basis of the vienna convention in literature of the subject we have two schools on reservations which really don't reflect practice mm. a possibility school which means that um, a state is a, a, a ruler or of the, of the reservation and decides on permissibility. Mm. And um, a, a permissibility school, which states that only permissible reservations are admitted in Article 19C. But both schools do not reflect the um, the practice of reservations. Thank you, Professor. Uh, you, uh, it, it's 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 a it's a it's a solid answer to like you you have given a bit of like the history what made the International Commission International Law Commission to come up with the Vienna Convention and then like you have dealt uh, reservation uh, and you have spoken reservation like you know how genocide convention and uh, uh, um, the rulings by International Court of Justice makes reservation as as one of the true pillar of international uh, treaty law. Um, I believe that that makes us our third question that I had with uh, 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 treaty of law and reservation is partially answered. Um, so um, I wanted to go to the fourth question, Professor, which is about uh, uh, a suspension of a treaty because as much as academics and practitioners pay attention to the formation of the treaties, uh, there are comparatively and significantly fewer discussions around law around the suspension of treaty. Explain it, to us how it's a very and good question, but if I made just few sentences on reservation. Absolutely, Professor. Absolutely. I just would like to add that the uh, practical guide of Professor Pelle dealt with this question, but he adopted a very radical solution of really um, cutting out an offensive reservation. And he relied on a practice of regional human rights courts, like European Court of Human Rights, which in several cases um, basically took out the offending reservation. Mm.
However, and this practice, including Human Rights Committee and its famous general comment 24, mm. met with certain protestations from states because reservations belong to consent to be bound. Consent to be bound is an expression of state sovereignty. So I don't want to dwell on it because we could get into 17 of the reports of Professor yes. Pele, for which <laughs> we don't have time. However, this is a very moot point mm. and in my view still unresolved. However, I would like to say the last sentence that the general practice of monitoring bodies of mm. human rights treaties is to engage in so-called reservation dialogue and to try to persuade a state to withdraw an offending reservation. So not radical, but persuasive. That, that is a very good point about uh, uh, reservation. I, I think uh, many students, uh, including me, when I had that uh, uh, opportunity to learn, um, that the persuasion idea of uh, reservation is something that uh, we, we usually do not find in the textbook, uh, that, that comes with the experience of talking. Uh, and thank you, Professor, again, for bringing that idea and, and, and giving that linkage between how reservation is some sort of sense connected to uh, uh, state sovereignty at the same time, international law's role. One of the role is to persuade the states to be bound uh, to the treaties, particularly to the human rights treaty. Um, Professor, the question uh, that uh, I asked uh, is about uh, um, suspension. Sus suspension of treaty. Can you talk to me about, about suspension of treaty? It's a very good question, not a very long answer, because this is something, as you said in your question rightly, the law of treaties is more focused on termination. Mm. Suspension is somewhat an ancillary product of termination. True. But maybe I just rely on the Vienna Convention and start with saying that Article 72 of the VCLT says that the suspending parties are released from the obligation to perform the treaty in their mutual and relations during the period of the suspension. So <clears throat> suspension um, does not affect treaty relations between states, mm. which have already been established by a treaty. And what is important about suspension that it actually um, it, it is based on the principle of um, saving the treaty. So if something goes wrong, let's rather suspend the treaty than terminate. Right. And as I said, the, it doesn't affect the relations between the states, legal relations, which have already been established by the treaty. So suspension uh, by a, uh, of a treaty is governed by, <clears throat> and I can direct you this um, by articles, <clears throat> article 57, and then 58 and 59 on the Vienna Convention. So the basic rule on suspension is considered is contained in article 57 that the suspension operation of the treaty in regard to all parties or to a particular party may be suspended 
in conformity with the provisions of a treaty or any time by consent, but of all the parties after consultation with the other contracting parties. So this is the basic rule, which as we can see also is based on the idea that treaty has to have a long life mm. and that it's very difficult to terminate or suspend a treaty. There are certain very important qualifying conditions. And then Article 58, which is suspension of a multi uh, operation of a multilateral treaty by agreement between certain of the parties only. And finally, Article 59, termination of suspension of the operation of a treaty implied by a conclusion of a later treaty. And this article, I also refer to Article 30, because also it is a very difficult question of relationship between various treaties in time. Then lastly, I would like to turn your attention to Article 60, which is material breach of a treaty. Mm. And this super difficult article, which is often confused with uh, the uh, law of countermeasures in state responsibility, um, also relates to termination or suspension of the operation of the treaties. And I would like to <clears throat> just read Article 60. Yes, please. Yeah, that Article 60, Paragraph 1 says that treaty can be terminated or suspended um, as a whole or in, in part bilateral treaty. Yeah? Yep. And it says that suspension on, of, uh, or terminating of treaty can also be invoked, invoked. It mm. means there is no automatic yes. suspension or termination in accordance with, with principle pacta sunt servanda. And in order to invoke, we go to procedural, mm. procedural um, provisions of VCLT which are Article 65, True. invocation, yeah. which I already said in the beginning, but they are already probably customary international law. So paragraph two, a material breach of a multilateral treaty by one of the parties entitles the other parties by unanimous agreement to suspend the operation of the treaty. So not to terminate, to suspend. Mm. So suspension plays a very important role in material breach of a treaty. In fact, I can say that this is the heart of the matter of the material breach of a treaty. Because treaty can also be a ground for invocation for, by a party specifically affected yeah. by a breach of a treaty, okay? Thank so you. this is the um, uh, core of the matter in suspension. Suspension. Um, Professor, as, as, as much as we speak about suspension, the inner stream of treaty law is about interpretation of treaties. Uh, I believe Article 31 and 30, 31 to 33 of the Vienna Convention speaks about the interpretation of treaties. Uh, can you speak to us about how the international courts and tribunals uh, have so far taken the interpretative approaches in cases concerning international treaties? Yeah, this is a very, of course, long question. 
and it merits a book, which was yeah. written. So <clears throat> I would like to say that all courts and tribunals always say that they are going to follow the rule of the Vienna Convention, mm. which in several cases, the International Court of Justice said that this is customary international law. So in some cases, when one of the parties were not even uh, didn't ratify Vienna Convention, the rule of the VCLT was applied as customary rule. Mm. So Article 31 of the VCLT includes so-called rule of interpretation. And it is a very complicated article. And what is important is that this is not rules of interpretation, but the whole article is treated as a rule of interpretation. So the chapeau to the um, Vienna Convent, to this Article 31 says that treaty should be interpreted in good faith, in accordance with ordinary meaning, mm. to be given in terms to terms of the treaty in their context and in the light of its object and purpose. So again, object and purpose. So we can say that object and purpose is a very vague criterion. And where do we look for object and purpose? Well, um, normally in practice of states, we say preamble to the convention, but also we look for object and purpose in all provisions of the treaty. So we come to a circular argument that if object and purpose uh, we need to, in order to interpret the treaty and we interpret the treaty to get the object and purpose. So this is not such a very useful criterion. That's true. It's true, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so later we have um, also uh, the um, other provision on uh, the Article 31, which is context of the treaty, which is um, a subsequent agreement and subsequent practice. And again, it is a very complex matter, which was an uh, object of the International Law Commission, again, work, uh, Special Rapporteur Professor Nolte. Mm. And he, um, he made some innovations because he put uh, the um, the um, any any uh, practice in in interpretation of the treaty, he put also to Article Thirty Two, which is supplementary means of interpretation. So it was quite a revolutionary approach. So exactly the um, international court and tribunals, although they always adhere to rule of to so-called Vienna rule of interpretation. However, they made some quite um, sometimes uh, uh, different approaches, all in name of the Vienna Convention. Yeah. And especially I would like to emphasize the practice of the European Court of Human Rights, which introduced so-called evolutionary interpretation of treaties. And it started with Trier case in which the European Court um, introduced the concept of a treaty as a living instrument. And uh, this treaty as the, the treaty as a living instrument, it means that 
we should look at the treaty at the moment of interpretation, which already in Namibia case, the court in its advisory opinion came to the same conclusion. But then <clears throat> the European Court of Human Rights took it step further because he looked, because the court takes into consideration the common understanding and common practice of the states, members of the Council of Europe. So it's almost take to the level of philosophy and ethics. So we are actually departing from the Vienna rule. And this is very, very, um, uh, very difficult um, uh, concept to follow. Uh, Fitzmaurice, who used to be, who was an UK judge on the European court, said that this actually uh, violates state sovereignty, this kind of approach, yeah. because a state consented to something else and uh, suddenly are faced with totally different interpretation of a provision to which they haven't consented. So, so he said that this kind of practice could only be um, well, and should only be pursued, legitimate, I would yeah. say, yeah. if state consented during the negotiation state on um, giving the powers of evolutionary interpretation to um, the court. That is so true. Yeah. Yep. Professor, thank you. Thank you very much for that uh, 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 clear explanation. Um, I, I, I have a final question to you, Professor. Um, um, this, this, is, this is more about treaty law and perhaps like uh, as a student from you and I could able to like uh, think further, but, but I wanna hear from you this, like why do you think not only the graduate students of law, but also the practitioners and policymakers of international politics, governance or security must understand international law's fundamental nuances, like particularly how learning treaty law would help them to understand the international law's role in theory and practice. Um, well, this is also a question which we could de debate for hours, but let me tell you something like this, that in my view and view, I think of other international lawyers, treaties are pillars of international law. They've been around for thousands of years. Um, and we already discussed, debated in the beginning why yeah. it is more significant than customary law and general principles in practice of states. So just to tell you that uh, since for 1945, state have registered 51,064 treaties with United Nations and 4,832 have been registered with the League of Nations. And also there is a great number of non-registered treaties, of course, and treaties which were concluded between 1919. So it shows that treaties rule the world, basically. I cannot imagine uh, areas of international law like disarmament, um, law of the sea, obviously the law of the sea convention, the yes. constitution of oceans, which 
codifies customary law, but also brings common heritage of humankind. And of course, international environmental law, which in 90% is regulated by treaties. So we complain rightly so about the plastic in the ocean, but how oceans would look like if we didn't have Marpol Convention on Pollution from Ships or London Convention on Dumping on, or CITES Convention in Trade in Endangered Species. We wouldn't have, we have so many species already on the brink of extinction, mostly the species would be extinct. So treaties in environmental law just regulate environmental law. There are few, only few principles which are principles of customary international law. But the main bulk of the law in the international environmental law is regulated by um, law of treaty. So um, from um, <clears throat> the, this is from practical point of view, from theoretical point of view, uh, we have, we can dwell on concept of sovereignty of states, which is connected to consent to be bound by a treaty, and especially with the uh, now exponential growth of treaties in environmental law and uh, functions of, cons uh, of conferences of the parties, which interpret the treaty and develop the treaty beyond the consent to be bound. So that brings the issue of a theoretical debate of legitimacy, for instance. So yep. just to give one example, now we have temporal questions. We have questions of division of international obligations into concessionally integral interdependent, which was introduced by Fitzmaurice. Yep. So it all contributes also to the theoretical debate which is still ongoing. Traité roi, traité contrat, which, you know, it's really a ground, even in relation to reservations, uh, what parts of a treaty are traité loi, what are traité contrat, whether all is traité loi. Uh, mostly reservations to, in genocide convention are to um, the article on um, I, the jurisdiction of International Court of Justice. Does it belong to um, the integral obligation or not? That was the debate by the court in Rwanda case. So practical and theoretical issues go hand in hand and they are ever fertile ground of scholarly and practitioners debate. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you very much for your time and for, um, uh, I would say, in, in, in a treaty law uh, for the last 40 minutes, the pure gold of uh, 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 providing us uh, um, oh. uh, insight from different perspective of treaty law. Uh, you are very busy, but, but you took time to join us and uh, NATO Association of Canada and uh, the Monk School of Global Affairs of the University of Toronto is extremely thankful uh, for Thank your time. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure for me with you, especially my star student, and Thank also you. to talk about the law of treaties. Thank you very much.